I'm Rupert Sheldrake. I'm here with Mark Vernon. This is another in our series of Science Set Free podcasts, and we're going to be talking about ancient philosophy. Mark, I've been looking through your new Idler Guide to Ancient Philosophy. The way you're able to make these Greek philosophies come to life, um, giving interesting stories as well as talking about the philosophers, but above all, the way you've shown how what they were talking about was related to how we lead our lives was, for me, very impressive and quite different from the usual academic philosophy approach to the Greeks, because what you're emphasizing is the practical side of it. And I was fascinated by um, your section on the Stoics, particularly, and how so many of their aspects of of their thought um, were taken up by Christian theologians and played into Christianity, um, because they have quite a lot in common. Um, uh, Particularly the way they take the concept of the Logos and living in accordance with the Logos. So, I mean, their take on the Logos was just one way of interpreting it, because Plato also had the Logos and so on. Maybe I could ask you a little bit more about that side of it. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's interesting you land on that, because that the Stoic notion of the Logos is one side of ancient philosophy that um, people who study Stoicism today, I think they didn't know quite what to do with it. Um, so there are quite a lot of people today who are interested in Stoicism, um, and they've taken it up as a sort of therapy. Um, the Stoics came up with this phrase, and a Stoic called Epictetus came up with this phrase, it's not what happens to you that matters, but how you respond to what happens to you that matters. Um, and making that distinction between stuff happening and how you respond. And actually, that notion, that distinction has you know, spawned a thousand self-help books. It's, it's in normally m- most of the self-help books that you can buy these days. So it's, in a way, it's become a very popular, very successful notion. But um, it's it's focused just at one level, the level of you and your sort of contentment, your ataraxia, as the ancient Greeks called it, a sort of inner tranquility, cultivating mm. that. But for the Stoics, that was only the first step. Um, and the reason why you would engage in that practice to try and develop this inner tranquility, not just responding, you know, to the hubbub of stuff in a reactionary way, was not just so that you might live a happier life, but so you could get in touch with this logos, this deeper principle, a sort of pulse that they um, discerned shaping all things. Um, It was, you know, divine uh, patterning or, you know, the word logos literally means word or law, but not in a rigid sense, um, something sort of written down, but like a tendency or a pattern, a harmony uh, that ran through all things. Um, And the idea is that if you can step back from your own preoccupations, then a much deeper and more wonderful sense of life comes through. Um, And then the Christians, when they're thinking, there's been this life, death and resurrection of Jesus, you know, what earth does this mean? This event um, that changes, seems to change everything, and they're trying to make sense of it. Stoicism by that stage was the most successful of the ancient philosophy schools um, in the early Roman period. Um, and in the early Christian period, the mid-Roman period. And um, they look to Stoicism and think, in short, you know, the Logos became incarnate. One way of thinking about Jesus is that he was the Logos incarnate um, and uh, revolutionises the concept as well as borrowing from the old Stoic notions as well. 
So John's Gospel begins, you know, with the famous phrase, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos. Um, and he's both using and remaking um, the Stoic notion. St. Paul, the earliest texts in the New Testament, um, borrows a lot from Stoic ideas as well. Um, uh, he clearly uh, was a Hellenistic Jew um, who had been deeply influenced by Stoic thought. Um, and he quotes from Stoic philosophers and Stoic hymns. And the phrase, in whom we live and, in whom we live and move and have our being, which you, know, you say yeah. today, to, that's a Stoic phrase. Um, the, the, the logos is that within which we move and live and move and have our being. That's very interesting. I mean, I'd always thought that the the logos, the word in St John's Gospel, was more directly Platonic and had come from philosophers like Philo of Alexandria, Jewish Platonic <laughs> philosophers. But what you're suggesting is it's more from the Stoic tradition, which was in any case more influential. Yeah, well, I think what happened um, actually is that. By this stage, so we're talking about four or five hundred years after the birth of Stoicism, and in fact after you know the life of Plato as well. And by this stage, actually, Stoicism and Platonism had quite an um, an intricate relationship. And um, whilst they had their differences, I think this sense that there was a deeper patterning um, that runs through all things, which it's possible for human beings to discern and then align their life towards, that fits both the Stoic um, intuition and the Platonic intuition, that somehow the many and the diverse, the multitude of life as it hits us um, day by day, um, through it and within it, um, is, um, it's possible to, to, to detect a kind of unity, a return to the one, as the Neoplatonists put it. Um, who again are they're a little later than the early Christian period? They're, you know, within the life of Jesus and the writers, people like Paul, they're second century onwards, really. But um, there, are, there are, in terms of intuiting something profound about reality, they share a lot in common. How they then interpret that does vary a bit, um, but th- there's a lot of synergy between the two. So I think John, uh, John's clearly influenced by Platonism as well. Um, but I think actually using the the word logos does pull him in that moment at least more in a stoic direction. I see. I mean, the, one of the things about it is adapting to what happens to us. Um, in one way, it seems a little bit passive. You know, things happen, and we have some control about how, how how we respond to what happens. But I didn't get a big feeling of being proactive, sort of going out and changing the world. And there's something in the Christian tradition that's more about being proactive. I mean, after all, Jesus didn't just sit around in Nazareth responding to what happened. He sort of went around teaching in synagogues, healing the poor, you know, speaking by lakesides, etc., and sent his disciples out to make things happen. Um, now, is there anything of that in Stoicism, or is it more just responding to what's happening? It, yeah, it's a very, really interesting point, and I think there probably is something a bit more um, proactive in Christianity. Um, but the way that Christianity takes up Stoicism is particularly in monastic traditions. The reason why we know so much about Stoicism is because it was preserved by the early Christian monks. They mm. copied the Stoic texts, so they survive. Um, and the way that the early Christian monks treated Stoicism was a, as a kind of... It was like Christianity 101. It was like the fir- it, when you joined the monastic community, you spent the first year or so practicing the Stoic um, exercises to develop this capacity not just to react. And that provides a basis then for being more in touch with the divine 
um, and then being able to, as it were, return to the world um, to in a more active way to bring that about. But the idea is that unless you've got a clear enough view, a steady enough view of the kingdom of God would be mm. the Christian phrase, this deeper perception of reality, um, you're constantly going to get kind of knocked off course. Um, so you have to go through this. Well, again, the traditional word subsequently is purgation. And um, the first step of the spiritual transformation that's required before you sort of return to the world. Um, but you return with your feet firmly planted in the kingdom of God, in the Logos. Mm. So that when you act, you can act, um, you know, in, in alignment with that rather than constantly being knocked off course. Um, so it's, it's, some, it's a sort of training um, that I think Christianity does change. I think Stoics did have a kind of... Um, uh, it wasn't they weren't engaged. I mean, some of the most famous Stoics were people like Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, and Seneca, um, the, you know, the senator and tutor of, of Nero. They were people deeply involved in political life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that their Stoicism was a more, perhaps a more, a more private thing um, that helped them maintain a steady disposition in spite of, you know, the, well, the horrors of Roman politics. Um, whereas in Christianity, you get the sense of more mission sense, you know, we can change the world, as, as mm. it were, as well as, uh, but by, the change is, requires you living in, in a different way in the world, being, again, to use Paul's phrase, being in the world, but not of the world. Mm. Otherwise, you just repeat um, what the world's doing. Well, yes. I mean, one thing I was very fascinated by in your book is the, the way you say that a lot of the founders of, or some of the founders of cognitive behavioral therapy very popular form of secular psychotherapy today um, were actually influenced by stoicism but trying to get rid of the religious aspect um, now that's really interesting first of all I didn't know they'd been influenced by it I mean were they influenced by reading ancient stoic philosophers or by what how did that come about yeah I mean the, the founders of CBT were explicitly stoics you know they they uh, they, they realized this was um, a really useful way of thinking about things and what they uh, re- did was remake it for the medical world you know kind of so they could, they could get it they get the evidence base um and uh, package it up as it were so that it could be rolled out in the U- in the u.s first of all but in the, in the, on the nhs now as well in the uk really and it, it, so were they how did they come to this stoic thing most people don't read stoics nowadays what led them into it studying philosophy or what well there's been there has been an interest uh in stoicism since the enlightenment um and particularly because um it seems at least i think it's a, a flaw actually but it seems as if it can be re- read without the theology without the logos uh, just as a sort of practical way of life mm. um quite a few um uh, Enlightenment thinkers and then people since um, t- returned to Stoicism um, because they saw it. I, I, th- I suppose they saw it as a way of of engaging with yourself that didn't require um, what they regarded as the you know. And often they were quite right. Um, the downside of Christianity is it as it was certainly at the time. Um, and uh, you know, there's, there's, there is something a bit purer about in Stoicism about um, you know working on yourself. Um, and I think particularly in the West where Christianity um, has this much more social side, you know, it's seen as part of society and, and, and in the Enlightenment period as part of colonial society too. Um, I can understand that desire to try and recover a way of life that um, feels less compromised by politics. Um, 
and, and in fact is interested in the individual changing rather than, as it were, managing the world, which mm. is often how Western Christianity can feel. Mm. Um, yeah, so, so, so Stoicism has this rebirth in the Enlightenment period, and, and the founders of CBT, um, I guess, are, are, are the, just uh, another phase in that rediscovery of Stoicism in, in the Enlightenment world. Mm. But the, their attempt to create a, a therapy that got rid of that concept of logos and the connection with the divine is sort of really stripping it down, isn't it? And the original one, that was a key part of it, presumably. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, the original Stokes would have said um, it's all very well to try and get some sense of how you, you react to the world, but if you haven't got a deeper sense at a soul level to sort of drop into... Um, then you're going to be, you're sort of left a bit stranded and um, constantly, as it were, monitoring your reactions to things um, without that uh, opening up a, a deeper engagement with the cosmos, which the Stoics, you know, originally called the Logos. Mm. And, I, and I, think this, I think this does show up because um, CBT, um, you know, has quite rightly exposed itself to um, evidence um, collection and, and, and trying to provide an evidence base. And, I, and it's still in process, you know, it's still, um, the, particularly the longitudinal studies are still coming through. But I think there is evidence that while stoicism can help people in the short term, um, you know, that, that c- coming to some sense of your reactivity can be really useful um, in, in moving out of a crisis situation. Um, in the long term, uh, it doesn't sort of provide a deeper sense of life um, that is sustainable over the long term. And some of the big um, pilots of CBT, um, particularly nationwide pilots, there's, there's one that's been um, had a lot of attention that um, in Sweden, uh, where the Swedish uh, mental health budget basically swang massively towards providing CBT. But over a 10-year period, um, it turned out that... Um, the longitudinal, the long-term effects of this were not good. That people were helped in the short term, but then uh, fell back into their old habits um, in the long term. And in fact, it cost the Swedish health budget more in the long term. Um, and I think that there's something profound about uh, trying to lose touch with the logos in that, or trying to sort of strip it out, um, because it doesn't enable the individual to settle into something a deeper source of life. Um, that mental health, mm. you know, can, can distract us from. Well, given that they're into scientific testing, then uh, another, an interesting comparison would be to have, there must be some people practicing CBT where they put the spiritual thing back or retained, or it could be reinstated, this connection with the Logos, this, and indeed perhaps in an explicitly Christian way. And then... Uh, given the fact they're into quantitative research, comparing the effect of CBT minus the logos with CBT plus the logos and see whether it works better. Well, see, I think this is actually underway because what's happening is um, CBT um, is being um, compared and contrasted with mindfulness-based stress reduction, as it's called in the US, Mm. Uh, but sometimes it's known as MCBT as well. Um, and at one level, it's about a technique. So, um, uh, if CBT um, encourages you to um, to question your reactivity, yeah, mindfulness encourages you to embrace um, your reactivity, to as a word, befriend it. And at one level, the idea is that CBT can set you at odds against yourself, 
whereas mindfulness tries to create an inner environment where you can befriend and accept yourself more. So there's a kind of therapeutic level um, where, where there's a difference. Um, but I think also mindfulness is much more um, because it explicitly comes out of religious traditions. Um, it's much more open to a spiritual dimension. Um, and whilst uh, I suspect the NHS would never sort of admit to that, the minute you get involved in any kind of, uh, you know, mindfulness practice, um, you quite quickly get a sense that there's a spiritual underpinning to this, which really can't be just dropped. Um, because, for example, um, mindfulness um, creates the sense or opens you to the sense that um, if you're trying to be more kind to yourself, that's only possible because there's a kind of compassion that runs through all things that you can rest in um, and that you can befriend yourself because, as it were, you've already been befriended at some level. Um, and so I think that the, the jury's still out, but my suspicion is that um, the move to mindfulness on from CBT, which is still underway, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's definitely there, um, will open uh, people up to the spiritual dimension again in a sort of round-and-about kind of way. But as we discussed in our dialogue on mindfulness, that, that too has been secularised with the, the spiritual dimension stripped out as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, it, it, people are trying to, but I think it's not quite holding water. So I know that there are huge debates about, for example, um, how much ethics matters in mindfulness. You know, can you, can you teach mindfulness just as a technique? Um, as, as has been done, say, in the American military, you know, the American military are taught mindfulness now to try to minimise post-traumatic stress. Um, but it's, as it were, to make them sharper shooters. Um, uh, and there's a huge debate going on. Is um, Does the ethical dimension matter in mindfulness too? Um, that your attitude towards the world is actually part of the mindfulness you're trying to cultivate. Mm. Um, and this has been stress-tested, <laughs> you might say. Mm. Um, and I suspect... Um, there will there will always be some that can use mindfulness just in a rather cool way mm. as a sort of mind's technique, um, but I think the imperative to to raise the question of how you engage with the world is there, and then beneath the ethic, as it were, lies the spiritual questions too. Yes. What is the nature of this world that you're engaging with anyway? Yes. Yeah. Well, the other thing about about your book was it was not just the Stoics, but you have a very helpful appendix at the end with the different schools of thought, and that makes it very clear that they were all concerned with how to lead our lives. I mean, not just the Stoics. I mean, uh, none of them were academic in the sense of just about ideas in a seminar situation, but um, even the Epicureans, who had clear ideas, and the Cynics, and so on. I mean, what are the main differences between those other approaches and the Stoics, and, and do any of those have relevance today? Yeah, I think so. Um, they, the thing about ancient philosophy was that it was a sort of, they were, they were whole um, systems of thought and life. Mm. Um, and their ethic, how they lived their life, was related to their physics, what they, they, the way they thought the cosmos was, and also their metaphysics, the more theological element. Mm. Um, and um, if, to juxtapose, say, the Stoics and the Epicureans, because they were the two most successful in the ancient world, um, the Stoics have this notion of the Logos, um, so it's clearly a theological, metaphysical notion. Um, the Epicureans were the ancient world's atomists. Um, they were the most, the clearest to modern materialism. 
it's not quite the same because they they did they didn't have a um, you know a modern physics notion of the atom. Mm. Um, they thought, for example, that the what they called spiritual atoms, as well as uh, sort of heavier, grosser material atoms, um, and that the spiritual atoms are, as it were, the life force um, that holds matter together and and makes it animate. Um, but nonetheless, they they and they weren't quite atheists. They didn't not believe in gods. They just thought the gods don't don't really have much to do with us. They argued that the the gods are blissfully happy. So why would they ever get mixed up in this world of you know pain and suffering? Mm. Um, it would just ruin their happiness. Um, so they argued that uh, j- just don't worry about the gods that much. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, they uh, their their view of the physical world was uh, overtly material. They believed in an, in, uh, an infinite universe of random movement, um, and we just happen to live in the bit of the universe where the atoms have come together to form the things we call you know plants and animals and human beings and mm. the world as we sort of immediately know it. But for most of the infinite extent of the universe, it's just random movement in a void mm. um that's how they saw it and of course there are there are people that feel the world is something quite like that now yes. today as well so epicureanism um has a kind of uh, a resonance for many today as well and actually in the same way that stoicism was rediscovered in the post-enlightenment world um the work there are modern epicureanism sort of tries to look to epicureanism as having a physics that they feel is commensurable with modern science but also that has a way of life too, you know, that, that can come out of that. How are you actually going to live your life? So the Epicureans, their, their, their key way, um, idea about the way of life was they thought um, that, that this inner tranquility can be discovered um, by taking pleasure in small things. Um, they thought that human beings are naturally pleasure seekers and pain avoiders. Um, and the way to train that so that you can actually be uh, happy in that is by being able to take pleasure, as Epicurus, the founder of the Epicureans, put it, taking as much pleasure in a glass of water and a barley cake as Zeus feasting on Mount Olympus um, mm. with the ambrosia and everything else that the gods enjoy. Mm. Um, so that was their sort of answer to how to live well, um, given the physical cosmos in which we live. Um, mm. Yeah. So uh, n- nothing like modern in the popular sense, materialism, sort of shopping mouths and conspicuous consumption, but living simply. Yeah, I mean, actually, Epicureanism, Stoicism, Cynicism, Skepticism, they've all got distorted in terms of the way that we commonly use the word now. So, for example, the ancient sceptics were not people that went around debunking other people's beliefs, mm. as I know you have experienced mm. firsthand. Um, but they were people that said, what we need to do is suspend our own beliefs and assumptions in order to see whether something different might emerge. So their way of life was organised around letting go of what you would otherwise hold fast to, um, to see whether a different perception of life could actually come through. Mm. Um, they, they felt that our trouble is that we hold on to our own story far too tightly, um, and that narrows and restricts life. So actually they've got a message, I think, for modern scepticism, uh, mm. which does spend a lot of its time uh, ruling out of court, uh, a lot of perceptions, which otherwise, you know, seem to us to be quite uh, immediate and obvious. Yes. Very interesting. Well, I, I mean, what's so interesting is that the, or the way you express it in your book, all these things are relevant today. And I know you give courses on these things. So have you ever tried with your students uh, spending, practicing, you know, one life as a 
skeptic in the old sense, one life as a cynic in the old sense, one life as a stoic, you know, one week as a, a, you know, doing it, trying it out experimentally. Yeah, well, well the way that we teach, and, and perhaps I could just give a little plug that these classes are online as well as uh-huh. actually happening in London where, where we live, um, but uh, um, online at the Idler Academy. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the idea is that uh, we go through um, a six-week course um, looking at the, the six key schools of ancient philosophy. Yes. Um, and I really try to each week to put across uh, as convincingly as I can what it would be like to inhabit that way of life yes. uh, in order to, so that people can put it to the test and see whether it adds up. Um, I should add that the ancient philosophers would have thought that a week is not nearly enough. No, of course oh, not. <laughs> but yeah. nonetheless, just to give us a sort of taste and a flavour um, of that. Very good. And, and what are the results so far? I mean, h- how many people have actually tried the, the experiment? Yeah, well, I think people on the whole um, tend to go for a bit of uh, syncretism. Um, they, uh, they find bits in, um, in different schools... Um, and actually in the same way that in the ancient world Stoicism and Platonism often feels like it goes together I think that the, the person that comes to the class you know, with a spiritual antennae already alert already tuning in um, they're likely to uh, go more that way um, whereas um, you know, the people that feel um, that uh, physicalism or materialism in the scientific sense um, is really um, the robust worldview that science has established um, they're going to be more likely to be inclined to the Epicurean way of life. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, so um, I think people, I suppose they aren't, they aren't, the quick answer is that people can find. What's interesting is that I think, you know, we live in a world where um, science in a way has become divorced from how we might live. Yes. Um, it's, it, you know, for, well, for, it's deliberately so. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and for mm. good reasons, obviously, sometimes, mm. you know, the objective knowledge uh, uh feels at least like it should be um, separate from the individual who's pursuing the knowledge. Mm. Um, and um, But I think that leaves us feeling alienated from the world at the same time. Mm. And so another reason why people turn to ancient philosophy is that it brings these two sides of things back together again. Yes. Um, which actually I think is, is, is more necessary. I think this idea that we're alienated, objective you know, viewers from nowhere um, is actually a mistake. Um, because how, who we are deeply influences how we receive um, what comes to us from the world. It's got to be a both and. I'm, I'm sure you're convinced of this already. but yeah. I am, yes. But I, I mean, I think that the, the sharp focus, this, the, this looking at these different schools of ancient thought brings to it, is very welcome, because right now most people, I think, are in a muddle. And the scientific so-called objective view, which deliberately separates facts from values, does leave a kind of void in the world of values. Um, so I think that the, the, the very practical thing um, about these different philosophies is that each of them focuses on everyday life as the starting point. Yeah, yeah. As um, indeed Christianity does. And But what's so interesting is the way you show that that's actually directly related to some of these traditions. Yeah, I mean, they were very clear that uh, philosophy starts, you know, right now in the present moment mm. um, because life is already, as it were, pulsing and flowing through you. And, and that's a common spiritual perception, isn't it? The value of the present moment yes. is that um, that's, this is where things change. Yes. Um, to be preoccupied with the distant future or the, you know, the past is actually inhibits change. Um, so they, they, they were, you know, very, again, the Stoics were called the Stoics not because they were Stoical, um, but because they thought that philosophy, this changing, this perception of life, should be done in the Stoa, the ancient marketplace. Yes. 
amidst the hubbub of the everyday. Um, yeah. Very good. Well, thanks very much. Thank you all. <laughs>